and I understand the reasons for it. They are defending what they know to be right. They are standing up saying clearly that we support human rights for all people. And they are hoping that this time, maybe this time, things might actually change. And it's a terrible crisis we are facing, but it's a repetitive crisis. And unlike Prime Minister Trudeau indicated that it was a crisis of infa infrastructure disruptions, callously, it is not. It is a human rights crisis that is rooted in the wrongful dispossession of lands from Indigenous people. And it's a crisis being faced by people right across the country. Hi everyone, it's Neshwa and I want to introduce you folks to my new podcast called Habibdi Please, which will be a more Muslim feminist focused podcast surrounding some of my own politics and my friends' politics. And I'm going to be trying to do a series on Canadian left politics and the co-host for that series will be a dear friend of mine, Ryan Deshpande, who I've known for a few years. So because he will be a consistent co-host, I want to introduce him to the audience a bit. Um, so Ryan's here with me to talk about himself a bit and then I'll intro our first episode for this Canadian politics series. Hi everyone, I'm Ryan. I've been good friends with Nashua for many years now. We live really close to one another in Mississauga, Ontario, although I'm currently based out of Toronto as I go to law school here. I followed Canadian politics closely over the last several years and Nashua and I are always talking about it and so I'm really excited to share those thoughts with you and to co-host these episodes and I'm especially excited for today's guest. Thank you so much, Ryan. And I'm so honored that Ryan signed on to do this with me, along with some of my other friends who you'll hear about throughout this series. Today, we had the honor for the first episode of this Left Politics in Canada series to interview Leah Gazan, who was elected a member of parliament for Winnipeg Centre in October 2019. She's currently the NDP critic for children, families and social development, as well as the deputy critic for immigration, refugees and citizenship. Gazan is a member of the Standing Committee on Human Resources, Skills, and Development. She's also on the Joint Committee of the Library of Parliament. She recently introduced a private member's bill called C-232, the Climate Emergency Act, which recognizes the right to a healthy environment as a human right. And she's currently getting a lot of media attention for M-46, the Guaranteed Livable Basic Income Act, which is something that we're going to touch on today, along with her entry into left politics and electoral politics, and a bit about her and the NDP and perhaps the future of the NDP incorporating other leftists. So thank you folks for joining us today. And it's truly an honor to start to do a series on left politics in Canada. Hope you all enjoy. Thank you again, Leah, for joining us today. Uh, today I'm co-hosting with my friend Ryan Deshpande. We are both big fans, really grateful for you to spend some time with us. And we wanted to discuss your proposed motion gaining traction, Motion 46, uh, building a progressive left in Canada with you and covered topics uh, such as the NDP and briefly a little bit about your politics and background. Um, so welcome, Leah, again. Uh, how are you doing today? Great, and I'm excited to be on the show with, with you both today. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. And um, we've heard you uh, talk about M46 a bit and 
we've like heard the text of it. Uh, we have a few questions for you about the mechanics that some people might be wondering. Uh, you've said often uh, when you look after people, that means good economics. What do you mean when you say that? Well, there's high cost to poverty. We know that uh, poverty uh, impacts uh, individuals' physical health, mental health. We know that when you don't look after people, generally you have higher rates of crime, for example. So what, what looking after people means is that, you know, you're caring for people on the front end. You're looking after the prevention pieces instead of putting all your resources into intervention. So we know through studies like the Minkum study in Manitoba that when people were actually given what they need, and that means provided with uh, the ability to live in dignity and with human rights, uh, that health improved that people actually continue to work, but there was less mental health issues, crime rates went down, and it just improved overall, overall well-being. I think it's time that we divest from corporate welfare. It's time that we go after offshore tax havens, uh, divest from fossil fuels, and use that money to invest in human beings to ensure that all people can live with human rights and, and in dignity. That's amazing. Thank you. You know, on that same note, we look at your petition and polling shows that so many Canadians do support a UBI, um, a universal basic income. And as of yesterday, the Motion 46 petition had over 37,000 signatures. Yet, you know, we see conservatives and liberals criticize um, a UBI as encouraging laziness or costing too much. And you know, being in Ontario, we saw that this is actually one of the reasons the Ontario pilot was scrapped, you know, largely political reasons. Um, yet results, even interim results were overwhelmingly positive and we can see that people really support your motion. So how do you challenge those who criticize um, Motion 46 or general basic income from a place of disinformation? Well, I mean, I have to go by research and, and research actually indicates the exact opposite, that people, in fact, uh, continue to work. Uh, but in, in fact, it actually encourages entrepreneurship and inter innovation. We also have to realize right now we're, we're at a critical juncture. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And one of the, um, the if you look at Health Canada, one of the ways breast protections is to physically distance and to frequently wash your hands. Well, you, that requires that you have a home and clean drinking water. I think we have to get away from, from the stereotypes that and blaming poverty on individuals and look at systems that have been designed to exclude people. We also have to understand that a lot of people that might not be able to work have good reasons. They might be, for example, dealing with very serious mental health issues. Do we wanna ask uh, senior citizens, our grandmothers and our grandfathers to get a job at 80? I mean, these are groups in, in the country, students, uh, for example, were unable to work this summer as a result um, of the of the pandemic who don't have money for tuition or you know are having difficulty um, uh, surviving disabled persons who were not even an afterthought uh, during the pandemic we need to make sure people are looked after we need to do whatever needs to be done and, and I do mention that one of the first bailouts that was given by this current government, uh, was to bail out uh, oil, big oil and gas. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that let's start changing the way we do things. Uh, oil companies don't need subsidies. Let's invest uh, in people. And I know in Alberta, 
um, where, you know, the, the much of the economy is focused around oil and gas, that in fact, over 60% of Albertans support a guaranteed livable basic income. Thank you so much. Uh, very much thinking about how systems are designed to exclude people. Uh, you've said uh, a few times that this is a movement and you come from the movement. And that's kind of how Ryan and I know about you a bit from before this. Um, and we have uh, seen rapid popularity for Motion 46 and universal basic income. And so we're trying to think through how does a movement and people power relate to the success of this motion in this upcoming day of action? Well, I've been really clear, this is not my motion. This is the people's motion. I mean, much of the work was done in very close consultation with Basic Income Manitoba, Basic Income Canada, as for senators such as Senator Kim Pate, who's been a real leader. It also has cross-party support. I have endorsements from the Liberals, um, the Greens, uh, the whole uh, NDP caucus uh, federally um, has endorsed um, the motion and people from all walks of life, uh, the disability community, um, you know, who have often been critical of, of a universal basic income, but are supportive of my motion because of paragraph five, which clearly stipulates that this guaranteed basic livable income would be in addition to current and future government public services, something that didn't have happen in Ontario that made some people poorer. Because depending on how this rolls out, um, it can either be a good thing or not a good thing. And that is why Motion 46 very clearly indicates with consultation from, from groups and, and input from groups across the country that it must be in addition to current and future government public services, people's voices are critical in this movement. People need to be very clear. We need to build on our current social safety net. We cannot replace our social, gut our social safety net with a universal basic income. We need, in fact, a guaranteed livable basic income for those who do not have it, in addition to current and future government public services and income support. So the movement and voices on the ground need to keep sending that message. And we need to send a very strong message to ensure that people's human rights and dignities are protected in this country. Thank you. That makes that makes so much sense. And that's actually one of the things I really like about the way this motion is worded is you're not trying to gut our already gutted social services. Um, that's something that, you know, austerity politics have targeted primarily is our social services. So you're so right that this pandemic has given us with the CERB that can be so easily converted into something like this. Like, um, this is a perfect time for something like like Motion 46. I think any time is the right time, but now is is really a good time to get people's support across the board. A hundred percent. And I think one of the things that we've learned in the pandemic during this pandemic is that we actually do have the resources, mm -hmm. just lack the political mm -hmm. will. And, yes. uh, you know, I think now's the time to push. If there was ever a time that I felt that this was really possible, it's now. So we need to uh, keep pushing. The throne speech is coming up and we need to push hard now. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your background and your approach to politics. So one of the things that you've said before is governing is about choices and I choose people. 
Now, what does that statement mean to you and how does that influence your work in Parliament? Well, I mean, if one only has to look at where money is spent, I mean, uh, this current government gave $50 million to MasterCard. I don't think credit companies need government money. Uh, law laws, uh, $12 million uh, for uh, fridges uh, we give. On average, I, I read in um, one an article, sixteen over $1,600 per Canadian on fossil fuel subsidies. Yet in my riding, the, th- the third poorest, I have families that are living in shelter as a, as a result of losing employment uh, since the pandemic, who literally were one paycheck away from being uh, on the streets. And for a country uh, that, that claims to uphold uh, human rights, for, for a country that has a constitution with their charter of rights, which includes the right for people to live with human rights and indignity. The fact that this is not happening in Canada, uh, certainly uh, apparent uh, on uh, in First Nations communities, where even issues around clean drinking water are still an issue today, uh, urban centers, uh, I find that abhorrent. I think we, I've been very clear, I think we need to divest from corporate welfare and uh, we need to divest uh, from uh, subsidizing big oil and we need to invest in people and we need to do it now. We need to do it now because uh, as members of parliament, particularly, we take an oath. And part of that oath is to uphold the rule of law. And that means upholding the constitution and the charter. So I'm just doing my duty as a member of parliament uh, to, to uphold and uplift our charter, to ensure that all people can live with human rights and dignity. Um, and we need to do that now. Thank you so much. And um, like, as Ryan and I have said, uh, we're very big fans and we agree with you about the urgency of now in this political moment. Um, and I know during uh, the struggle of the land protectors in Wet'suwet, and you eloquently spoke as you do many times, and you have also said human rights are not a partisan issue. Human rights are human rights during the emergency debate in the House of Commons. And there's an incremental uh, justice given to Indigenous people in Canada. And I'm wondering if you'd be open to talking a little bit about how, as an Indigenous woman in the House of Commons, that impacts what you fight for. Because as a woman of colour, I know what I fight for is is inevitably rooted in what I do and my lived experiences. Oh, for sure. So it's, it's a little bit of a bizarre experience to have your basic human rights up for debate every day when you enter your workplace, uh, you know, prior to COVID, uh, you know, every day, uh, every time I sat during question period, I would have to hear my minimum human rights up for debate uh, in the House. And I actually rose in the House and said that. I said, I don't know many people in here that every day when they go into the House of Commons, they have to listen to their minimum human rights up for debate, the kind of human rights that are articulated in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, Canada has agreed to uh, uphold, uh, has uh, uphold um, agreements that they've made with the international community at the, inter, uh, at the United Nations level. But we also have domestic laws, laws that are broken every day in this country, particularly particularly around lands and resources, uh, by industries that have built their profits off the the human rights violations of Indigenous peoples. 
Um, and so I've spent my life fighting for human rights, uh, certainly as an Indigenous person. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it certainly has informed much of what I've done. My father, uh, being a Holocaust survivor from Holland, lost my whole family on both sides because of the Holocaust. I understand uh, the impacts of the most brutal, brutal human rights violations, both from my ancestry uh, in, in this place we now call Canada and um, in Europe. Um, and we must be concerned when one person's human rights or a group of people, when their human rights are impacted, we all must pay attention because who's going to be next? And so, you know, much of the reason I ran, uh, much of the work that I do now centers around uplifting human rights for all peoples uh, in, in Canada. And that includes, you know, certainly the people, many people in my riding that live without human rights that I witness. Uh, declining mental health uh, as the pandemic persists um, in Indigenous communities across this uh, land where uh, housing and even access to clean drinking water is still an issue, um, where, you know, even with uh, the current government around, um, you know, still taking a residential school survivors to court with the St. Anne's a residential school or their failure to um, listen and abide by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling to immediately stop discriminating against First Nations kids. Human rights of anybody should never be a partisan issue. Human rights are human rights. We agree to this as members of parliament uh, when we take an oath to uphold the rule of law, which is the constitution and the charter, and I'll continue to do that. You have a Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that has ruled against your government for discriminating against First Nations children. We are now at nine non-compliance orders. If the rule of law is about respecting the law, are you not breaking the law here? Yes or no? First, thanks you for the question. Uh, this is um, this is a highly um, emotional uh, yes issue. Yes or no? Because uh, we're, I, we're speaking about yes First no Nations question. children, uh, and and uh, this government is resolutely committed so to. I, an I, I allow him to ask the, answer the question. Um, please let's cut the talk overs and, and get a question answered, and then move on. So uh, what we're facing as a, as a government is uh, is a challenge on many levels. Uh, the prime minister, in his mandate letter to me, has been quite clear. We. Uh, will compensate First Nation children for the harm um, they have suffered to the extent Chair. that monetary co compensation can do so. Uh, we'll, move, um, we'll move on to the next one. Well, this is a very important so, issue to me, MP Gazan, so yeah. I'm glad to answer it at a later date. But, um, it, you're it not answering that, my question. That requires a lot, a lot more Because it seems discussion. that your government supports the rule of law when, it's, when it suits your economic interests. And I say that because many times we end up in these situations in Canada because it does not respect their own laws their court decisions or human rights of Indigenous peoples or Indigenous laws. So if upholding the rule of law re means respecting law in courts, we can hardly conclude that respecting the rule of law uh, of indigenous pe for Indigenous people and their rights has occurred with this uh, government. Do you agree? I think as Canadians, we only need to look at the examples of a pound maker, uh, Big Bear, Louis Riel. You mentioned the Human Rights Tribunal decision, and we've seen video of you questioning Indigenous Services Minister Miller on 
the government's non-compliance with that um, decision. I, I think there have been nine, not you've said nine non-compliance yeah, orders. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so as a, as a law student, I, I just laugh because I don't know what other reaction to give. But, you know, as a law student, I really appreciated you bringing up the rule of law. We notice that the rule of law is selectively applied by government to marginalized people. You know, for unjust laws, they're over-enforced, um, but when it comes to giving human rights, they ignore it. Um, we see that with Indigenous people, especially um, when it comes to upholding land and treaty rights and also just basic services. And another movement we've seen as a result of injustice is the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I wanted to um, talk about that a little bit and, and get your thoughts um, Specifically, Black Lives Matter and other community organizations have called for demilitarizing and ultimately abolishing the police and reallocating that money to community services. Do you think people can look to electoral politics and specifically the NDP as a progressive voice to support those kind of demands? Well, I certainly can can uh, speak to folks like Matthew Green, who have been, you know, very, very clear uh, who has been very, very clear on his position for defunding police. Uh, and I think people need to understand what that means. Uh, you know, a, 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 there much of budgets has gone into policing uh, and, you know, that deal with things at the end game because policing is much about intervention, not prevention. What, what people are talking about is to divest from police and reinvest in community. And I know in my, my community, frontline organizations that are equipped to deal with things are grossly underfunded. Uh, you know, I've, mental health, uh, police shouldn't be doing mental health checks. You know, that needs to be done uh, by uh, people who are qualified to do so. And we also have to go back to even what I'm talking about in the motion, we know, we know, that when you look after people, like the, the most violent human rights violations, one of the most violent ones is willfully keeping people in poverty. We know that when you actually invest in people, invest in people, that it looks after much, much of the issues that people are concerned about, even in terms of, you know, supporting crime reduction. So I've been very clear on my position. I think that we need to uh, defund punitive systems, but I think it goes beyond just police to, you know, representation, uh, you know, even in our justice system, in our courts, you know, and we need to refund uh, communities. Thank you so much. And as we uh, wind down this interview, uh, I want to thank you because I, I think about a lot about how social determinants of health as a student who does more public health work like UBI grants. So when you have social determinants of health, you can feed yourself, you can clothe yourself. A lot of things that are criminalized are not crimes anymore and people can thrive. And there's also um, an eight to nine percent reduction in the cost of the healthcare system functioning because people can be healthier. And I think people who come from kind of political activist backgrounds have this language and know about this a lot. And I was looking a bit about some of the background, the activism you've done in the past. And I've heard that during the Oka crisis, you camped out in solidarity on the Manitoba ledge. And I really encourage listeners to look at uh, Leia's long history of activism after listening to this. And to me, that's very inspiring. And Ryan, as people who are part of social movements, to see um, other people elected who... Um, 
we we can trust because of their histories of struggle with us. And we've seen the win, the, the election of Cory Bush um, in America, who was an instrumental member of BLM after the murder of Michael Brown in her city. And so we're wondering, um, the NDP has an arguably mixed history with supporting some activists and organizers who want to run in the party. But um, with your election and a few others, I see some potential. Do you see this potential of activists getting involved in electoral politics in the NDP? Well, 100 100 percent. I mean, I was elected by the movement. Uh, You know, I I was funded by the movement. Um, You know, we need at this time, we need progressive voices in the in the House of Commons. And we need people that are elected that are willing to speak truth to power, that are that are fierce, fearlessly dedicated to human rights uh, and climate justice. Quite frankly, we're we're in a climate uh, emergency. Uh, one of the things that I ran on is to bridge, uh, you know, the grassroots uh, on, with the inside or from the outside to the inside. And I think I've done that. Um, you know, I've worked uh, really hard to do that. I certainly went in knowing that sometimes it might be a struggle. I have four very, four very clear measurements on, on which I base all my decisions. I'll share them with you. So when I was, I said, okay, well, when you're in the house, it's different. You're going to have pressure. So these are my measuring tools. Like these are my cutoff bottom lines on any decision. Am I supporting human rights? Am I supporting uh, indigenous rights? Are we going to meet climate targets? And am I uh, abiding and supporting the rule of law? And so I have been doing that. I'm going to continue to do that. This motion is critical. Uh, We need to highlight uh, the growing, it's bigger than growing inequality. We need to highlight the level of growing poverty in this country, how people are turning a willful blind eye to this violent human rights violation. And we need to ensure that all people can live with human rights and dignity on these lands. Thank you so much. And um, just a last question is about, um, you've so eloquently spoken about the connection of how universal basic income can um, alleviate some of the poverty people have on this land. Uh, And we've seen a lot of people, the shelter systems and the debates that have been going on during the pandemic. But uh, many people would argue that there's a lot of young socialists like the Democratic Socialists of America in the U.S. rising. And I think Canada has that thirst for a movement. And Ryan and I are in our 20s and we're seeing it, too. And I've seen um, you in the Globe and Mail be identified as a socialist. Um, do you do you think that there's this potential for like a bigger, larger socialist left in Canada? And do you think socialist values are coming in with you? Well, I don't think I, I share them alone. I think, you know, uh, certainly there's folks around our caucus table that have declared themselves socialists as well. Um, but, but I think, you know, it's about looking after people. You know, I come from a long line of socialists, right? My dad was a socialist. My mom was a socialist. My grandparents were socialists. Like I have that and on and on and on, right? And so I don't see shame in putting people first. Um, I think there's been a normalization of this, uh, you know, um, you know, if we want to talk about, uh, you know, over support and 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 gross uh, support of of what I call a growing corporate welfare in this country. And I don't hear I think we need to change the discussion. Like, why are people not saying 
all that corporate bum sitting on his yacht drinking cocktails on my <laughs> taxpayer dollars. We need to change the discussion here. Like it's time to divest from corporations and it's time to invest in people and make sure that all people can live with human rights and dignity. And that is my value. And, and I feel very proud to have that value of putting people first, um, you know, putting, putting uh, environmental stewardship and protection uh, first uh, to put all human beings, uh, all life, all kinds of life first. And I think that's a good value. So do I think there's a growing amount of people who are joining in that value? 110%. And it's a wonderful time uh, to, to a wonderful thing to watch across the country, particularly young people who are rising in support of human rights, uh, social justice and climate justice. Um, thank you so much. I um, when you when you mentioned people, more people need to complain about corporate bums taking up their taxpayer dollars. <laughs> um, yes, you're right. Uh, Nashua and I complain about that all the time in joking ways, but you're actually right that we need to be more public and vocal about these kind of complaints because that is actually popular education and um, we want to do even more popular education. But also, I think that's almost like culture shifting, right? Our culture right now is focused on um, putting down people who don't have enough, but it, our, if our, we turn our attention to those who are taking too much, I think that can have transformative effects on how we view other people and want to take care of other people. Yes, yes, abs absolutely. And I think um, if you just think, if we actually divested from places and got money, like from, for example, offshore tax havens, taxing the ultra-rich, I know in my riding, if that money was actually invested in our beautiful community of Winnipeg Center, that that I wouldn't have families and kids falling on the streets uh, without a home right now because they are still at the bottom of the rung. It, we need to put people first. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time today. Um, as progressive young people, we take so much inspiration from your background and your work. Um, we I, we love following your social media and oh, we love seeing your dogs. <laughs> um, yeah, we're big fans. Yeah, um, Miss Lily got a bath today because we're taking a road trip to Ottawa. Oh, nice. A, the throne speech, yes. Well, hopefully we can have you. Hopefully we can have you back on again in the future. Okay, just a couple of shout outs. Can I yes. do a couple? Of yes, oh, please. yes, and we have a question okay, so, about the day of action. So, Sorry. Day of action, September the sixteenth. Mm -hmm. Keep an eye out. You can find out all the information and sign the petition at leahgazan.ca slash basic income. And you can also check out the uh, endorsements. And I'm proud to say the United Steelworkers, I'm a big Steelworker fan, has endorsed Motion 46. Wow, nice. Both Nashua and I have lived in Hamilton and we, we know about the, the proud steel heritage there as well. Yes. As, Matthew Green. Like, yes. Yeah. Matthew Green. Yes. 100%. Yes, we're going to have him on as well. Powell, former steel worker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and um, where can people follow your social media? What's your uh, handle to, if you oh, can give yeah. them that? And you can follow me. Uh, please do on Twitter. Is that it's at Leah Gazan. 
And you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Leah Gazan MP. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. We will we will link all that information in the show notes so people can click it easily. Um, and that's it from us. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Habibdi Please is hosted by Nashwa Lena Khan and Ryan Deshbandi, with music and editing by Johnny Zapras and Post X America. Art for Habibdi Please is also done by Post X America.